So yeah, thank you, Nikki, for joining us today on Utano Public Health Chats. I'm going to let you introduce yourself. So feel free to like tell us a little bit about yourself, what kind of work you do, where you're from and where you're, ba- like, um, where you're currently based, and a little bit about like the work that you do, how long you've been working in public health, um, and or the countries you specialize in. All right. Uh, thanks so much for having me. I am Nikki, uh, Nikki K. And I'm a public health doctor. So that means I'm a medical doctor who Mm -hmm. specializes in public health medicine. So this is one of the specialties of, you know, you can be a cardiologist, you can be a pediatrician, or you can be a public health medicine specialist. So I'm one of those. It's a bit of a nebulous job. My work changes depending what agency I'm posted to or what area I'm working on. I would say the best description of my work is to be a public health Swiss army knife. So when I need to be clinical, I'm clinical. I see patients. Uh I'm still fully registered uh, in the medical council. Uh, When I need to be uh, in a policy mode, I work with policymakers in the ministry or in other uh, government agencies. Um, I've worked in different uh, health promotion agencies, aging planning offices for government agencies. Um, And it's when it's needed for me to be an academic. Sometimes I'm in this uh, academic role where I'm doing research and studies. So yeah, I'm a bit of a Swiss army knife in that regards. But at my core, I'm a medical doctor who specializes in public health. I'm based in Singapore, which is where I've lived for the last 16 years. I went to medical school in Singapore. Uh, I did my public health training in Singapore. So I'd say, I guess I'm a specialist of Singapore mostly. Mm-hmm. Um, but before I, I moved to Singapore, I actually went to college in the U.S. So I spent four years in Minnesota. And after that, I worked in the U.K. and I also worked in Kenya. So I would say uh, probably my specialty area, the countries I focus on are in Southeast Asia. But I have recently worked in Kenya and also in the United Kingdom. Wow, that's you really put the the global global hub. That is so amazing. So so amazing to hear your different like uh, I guess pit stops in your career path, and that you spent sixteen years in Singapore. I have so many follow up questions, um, especially around what you say that you are trained as a medical doctor, and then you're like I guess. I am mostly familiar with the U.S. medical system, so I know that they do a residency. So it's interesting to hear that public health medicine in Singapore is a special specialization that you actually take as a like the same way you would take internal medicine or I don't know OBGYN something like that. So that's pretty cool, and I have so many questions about that. So you said you've been in Singapore for sixteen years, and that you studied medicine there so would you say basically you've been on this career path in public health for the past 16 years right yes I, even when I applied to medical school I knew I eventually wanted to be a, a public health doctor um, I, I briefly wanted to be an emergency room physician but mm-hmm. I think at my heart I, I really always wanted to do public health and even before I went to medical school like I said I was working in Kenya I was working in trials Mm-hmm. Uh, I was working um, in the U.S. as well in, in public health in some capacity, um, more really as student internships and that sort of thing. Right. And how you said you so for you, it kind of like I know people have different ways that they end up in their careers. But you it sounds like you were very, I guess, clear on the path that you wanted to take. And I guess what motivated you to choose to to have a career in public health? So for me, uh, maybe I'm aging myself, uh, but the time I was growing up was really the, the height of the HIV uh, pandemic uh, in Zimbabwe where I was living. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know, it just really affected me. You know, our house was like, you know, we're the Harare relatives. So when all our relatives got really sick, because mm-hmm. that time there wasn't any ART, there were no drugs available. We were sort of running a mini, I don't know, HIV like hospice center at my house so we had relatives you know from uh from Bulawayo from Kumusha from like all across the country who'd Mm -hmm. end up in the final days of their life living at our house and you know as the eldest African girl child you're sort of like the manager of the refugee camp so I I did a lot of the caring work um for my relatives who it really was palliative care because there wasn't really anything anyone could do at the hospital or anywhere. So it just really had a profound impact on me growing up. Uh, I was sort of, you know, a nurse in that, in that sense, um, mm-hmm. taking care of my relatives. But I think I started to ask myself, you know, 
beyond the, the care direct, I was like, you know, what is causing this? Like, what is going on? What can we do to stop this? What can we do to make this better? And I remember when we first read about the medicines that became available for HIV, but the prices that they were talking about, I was like, oh my goodness, my, my parents are civil servants. Where would we ever get? And we are considered the rich relatives. Where would we ever even uh, get the money to afford that? So it was really, um, a lot of my family is also based in South Africa. And I, I knew people who just sort of said, no, this is not acceptable. Our, our people are dying. You can't choose profit no, over lives. So they were really involved in sort of the community. Uh, I think in South Africa, there was much more of, you know, demonstrations in the street, uh, really community grassroots protests um, saying, no, you can't let us die. Uh, you know, it, it, yes, you've made the drugs available to uh, gay men in America, but uh, what about us in South Africa? You know, and I think I really started to ask the political questions about health. And that's when I knew that I want to do something that impacts at that bigger scale. Mm. I actually didn't want to be a medical doctor at all. Uh, I really, I wasn't really into the whole like blood thing and like procedures, but I knew I wanted to, I wanted to go into, into health. What eventually made me go into medicine was that when I did start to work in community programming, so I was working, there were a lot of like HIV uh, volunteer programs in Harare, Mm-hmm. We would be counseling people who are going for testing, that sort of thing. When I just sort of examined the dynamics of those programs, and even when I went to university, I studied anthropology. Uh, so I, I wasn't even like really thinking of medicine, uh, as you can tell by my major choice. I, I really thought I was going to be, <laughs> I don't know, studying mm-hmm. politics or something like that. So while I was sort of volunteering in these health programs, either in Zimbabwe or back in the US, I just picked up on a dynamic where no matter what the program was, the doctor is always in charge. So even if I said something, you know, um, as, a, as a volunteer, as a counselor, it wasn't taken as seriously as when the doctor said the same thing. Um, so I quickly picked up on the fact as, a, as an undergraduate that if I needed to be taken seriously in this health area that, you know, yeah. HIV AIDS had pushed me into, uh, I had to become a doctor. So that was actually my motivation from dealing with a lot of rude doctors who didn't respect the opinions of non-doctors. Um, so I said, you know what? I, I don't think medical school is that hard. I can do it. <laughs> like, bring it on. Like, if, if this is what I have to do to, to have my voice count in the room, uh, then I'm going to do it. So that's when I sort of, somehow in the middle of college, I had to like, make sure I, I got all the pre-med classes done. Uh, oh, I was studying in the US at that time. <laughs> yeah. Like, Luckily, I was a chemistry major as well. So I was anthropology okay. and chemistry because mm-hmm. my parents, my parents really put their foot down and said, nah, you can't, you can't go to America and study anthropology. At least like study something else that we're familiar with. So like we so need that STEM. We need that. We need that. Relate. So I was really glad I had it. I had at least the chemistry classes. So I had to like quickly take you know, some biology Bio, and some yeah. of the other things that I, I didn't have and, you know, study for MCATs. So then that's when I really seriously um, started to think about medicine. Um, so yeah, that's how I ended up in my career. Wow, that's pretty, that's amazing. There's so much to unpack on what you shared, but I definitely resonate with a lot of what you're saying, um, especially around kind of like the exposure to like, I feel like for a lot of Zimbabweans and a lot of Africans who are like millennials, like the our exposure to the public health system and kind of it's basically kind of like the babies were born now like like people are young now their exposure to public health is going to be the COVID pan- uh, pandemic that we're currently in so similarly yeah you're right that when I think back to like my first experiences with like the healthcare system or realizing there's like things that need to be fixed or that like there's an issue it definitely it's definitely HIV um and like like you're right that like it was family and friends and people we knew that were suffering from it um and yeah you're right the the, the what you talked about um global health being political you've got to be exposed to the political aspect of it when you saw those um protests in south africa it's interesting i don't also i was too young maybe but i don't remember any activism on zim's side like i wonder like i remember when we were in high school like i was in a youth against aids club and by, the t- and by that time, this is like, now I'm aging myself. <laughs> by then, by this time, it was like, you know, like, I think 
mid let's say mid 2000s and like ARTs were now available but like you say there was issues of access issues of like pricing and at the time there was just no pill for kids and I remember we did a, an advocacy project and we we're advocating that there be medication for children and that it'd be one pill so we were engaged in that kind of work but beyond that I, I don't really remember thinking of public health as political at least at that I mean also even thinking of it as public health I think that for me that was that's another layer like it was just health at a higher level I think (laughs) for the earlier part of my career I I think in them in in them it wasn't so political Mm -hmm. but it was really a a social battle I remember it was really a war because there was a lot of stigma to unpack we know in something it's to do with sex there was a lot of shame in Zimbabwean Mm -hmm. culture about talking about sex about, you know, who is getting AIDS? Is it like, you know, people who are promiscuous? So I think a lot of the work we were doing in communities in Zim was just to break the stigma, to just talk about it, you know, to just talk about things like sex, condoms. It really took a lot of ground community work that those things are now like normal parts of conversation. And, you know, we, we, had, we had the church leaders who were so against hearing anything about condoms anything about you know sex they were like you know we're not having sex before marriage anyway and when we're in marriage we're faithful so you know we don't want to hear about condoms um, so it was really highest incidence yeah. and prevalence rates in the region yeah so i mean it wasn't political in the terms of we were not fighting the global struggle like how south african activists were fighting you know pharmaceutical mm-hmm. companies Absolutely. and that sort yeah. of thing but I think there was a political battle within our own society of how we viewed AIDS um, and the stigma. My goodness, I, it was really bad. I actually had a question for you on that when you mentioned that you you, um, you got to take care uh, of a lot of relatives that would pass by your home. What was that experience like for you? Like, as you mentioned, like stigma was a really big thing. I remember that as well, where like kind of like when COVID started, right? Like where people are like, we don't even know, can we touch people with HIV? Can And we weren't even using HIV. I think it was AIDS. It was, it was AIDS. You have AIDS and you're going to die. Like you're saying, a lot of times people would get sick and then they kind of just like ostracized from their community. So as like, as you mentioned, having a, a home that was open to your relatives, um, and you being like, you know, the person who was also responsible as a caretaker there, was there any fear on your end? What kind of resources were available for you? Or were you just kind of like winging it as you went? Honestly, I was just winging it as I went. I just knew that, okay, this thing has fallen to me. There's nowhere else for these people to go. The fact that they're here means that they've exhausted, you know, every other avenue they had. So, you know, I'm not going to be able to pass it on to anyone. So I just had to get on with it. So I didn't really have the time. Like, I don't think I can fully really explain like how many people were dying. I was literally running like a mini hospital here. You know, I always, I always say, you know, the first time I had my own room was like when I was in my 20s. I never had that concept of, oh, I have my own bedroom right, where I sleep yeah. by myself. Like I've always just had like relatives <laughs> living yeah. here. And like, so, I mean, I just had to get on with it. There was no... I mean, what was I going to do? Just time. leave yeah. them to starve <laughs> or not bath. So I just had to get on with it. And these were my relatives. I just had to take care of them. Yeah. So I wouldn't say, I mean, no one trained me on how to do anything or anything. Mm-hmm. I just had to get on with it. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing to just hear how you kind of like pick that up. For me, even now with especially I remember it must have been so triggering for you at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, because it was for me at least just like so much similarity in language and experience and you like you're right that like when you then I'm not home right now as well but like then hearing when a family member has or they think they have COVID and and, and kind of like the whispers and and all of that was very similar to kind of like what we had experienced in our childhood kind of like oh my gosh it hasn't even yeah and and we're back here it's funny it's funny you mentioned that because at first you know my parents were like oh my god are you scared when COVID came and I told them that, you know, the hospital is really overwhelmed. So although mm-hmm. I'm usually working public health on the policy side, I actually spent uh, almost a year working clinical. I was working in an emergency room because they were just so overwhelmed by the number of cases. So initially, we didn't know anything about COVID. This was and we got hit in January at the same time as China. Mm-hmm. So I remember it was like the first week of January 
we just got you know there's a few cases in China so i mean right. our bosses who are consultants had lived through SARS so we'd almost okay. grown so up you know hearing the okay. war stories from SARS so we didn't have a very optimistic view we knew the moment we heard okay there's you know an unidentified pneumonia in China everybody went into SARS mode like just okay. like that whereas you know other countries it took them it took months to be like oh, i don't months, know so i don't yeah. know if it's going to if it's going to leave China but we were like already like mentally prepped that you know right maybe some of us are going to die institutional memory know. yeah mm-hmm. you're the institutional yeah memory. i remember talking to my friends and be like guys you know we used to hear about SARS now we are and you know in SARS a lot of doctors died in Singapore so we were ready i was like you know maybe you know we're going to bury some of our friends maybe i'm going to die and my parents were freaking out but i think the experience that i had taking care of people like during hiv time mm-hmm. you know and really caring for them i wasn't scared that i'm going to get aids so i, I think in the same way i, I wasn't scared that i'm, I'm going to get covid and i guess now i'm i'm more knowledgeable about PPE and that sort of thing than I was, you know, when I was a kid. When, at the outbreak. Oh, okay. When you were taking care of like HIV patients. Yeah. And it's so interesting because like biologically, they're very different, right? One is airborne and like HIV is any, I don't know if you would call it less riskier. I wouldn't know, but at least it was blood-based, right? Unlike COVID where it's like literally droplets of air are spreading it. But yeah, that's an interesting like start to your career and kind of like a motivator where it's like you've been, I guess your your grassroots are at like at the front lines of like actually actual patient care and like you you saved in, in in essence palliative care right towards the end of the life course for your family members and then then using that kind of like experience it sounds like to then volunteer in the community and then also being I guess it sounds like you were really smart because it sounds like you were, you quickly picked up on what I then had to learn in my 20s which is that doctors rule any everything <laughs> yep <laughs> so that's that's pretty cool of you to kind of like that you picked up on it and I guess you saw it on the front line that to be a physician in most settings with a clinical community based or otherwise is to be a leader. People look to you for knowledge. People look to you for guidance. And that gives you power. And like you say, the ability to be listened to. Uh, it's so interesting because when I started my master of public health, we were assigned um, mentors in the program. And I got assigned a, a woman epidemiologist and she's like amazing, 25 years of experience, done everything you can think of in epi. And I was asking her that question around, like, she did a master's and then worked and she doesn't have any clinical training. Um, But then after working, she then came back and did her PhD. So I was asking her, like, her motivation for the PhD. And she basically said what she said. So (laughs) she was like, especially (laughs) as a woman in the field that is health, it's generally a male-dominated field. We're still, when you're working, even I think it's the same in Southeast Asia and in Africa, it's going to be a lot of men. It's going to be a lot of male doctors and they're not going to take you. Yep. So she said, I worked three to five years and realized that if I was ever, ever going to get my name on a paper, if I was ever going to be the PI, if I was ever going to get any kind of like growth in my career, I had to have doctor in front. And she didn't feel like, you know, she was kind of like too late for her. She just didn't feel called to clinical practice. So she went back and got her PhD. So for me, that was like my moment of awakening. I think I'd kind of seen it, but I'd been like on the fence. And I was like, do I really want to do that MD? Do I really like care for patient care? But really, it's you're right that sometimes within different like career paths in public health, sometimes you choose to do particular training, not just for the skills you have, but like for the doors that it will open for you and kind of like for the ability to be listened to and like taken seriously. So um, I'm glad like, you know, some of these things you think about them, that like it's, it's great to hear them from other people because then it's like, okay, I'm not crazy. <laughs> I'm no, not it's, crazy. It's, it's really true. And, and it has made a difference. I think medical school is definitely tough and residency was really tough, uh, but I probably do it again if I wanted to stay in the field. But they definitely, now I look back, there were different parts as well I could have taken. I think I had different, I was really fortunate, you know, I was someone who could do anthropology and do chemistry. So I really had a lot of different paths um, that I could have taken in global health. I'll, I'll always be thankful I chose medicine because it's honestly been the privilege of my life to be let into people's lives at their most vulnerable. 
they let me, you know, come in and just stomp into their world. And I don't know, there's nothing, there's nothing quite like it. There's a lot of uh, systematic, uh, you know, I don't know if I can swear on this podcast. There's a lot of stuff uh, in the system of, of medicine, uh, mm-hmm. but I'll never regret uh, being having that patient uh, interaction. Yeah, so whether yeah. I'd been a doctor or a nurse or a pharmacist, mm-hmm. uh, that is what keeps me going to medicine is that special connection that I wouldn't have been able to have in any other job. Yeah. It's interesting because I was just looking at a thread um, on Twitter today where someone in global health was talking about how their PhD programs where someone will do, they're like, it's a problem. The fact that someone could be a TB specialist and have a PhD in like TB, all things TB and have never like interacted or seen a patient with TV and then so the thread then kind of like I went down a rabbit hole of people talking about like is that necessary is it not what does how what's the value add of having you know that clinical training even if you then become a researcher or like you would say like working on policy or working at a I guess two or three times removed um, position from the actual front line it's not even the training that's what I'm saying is that the training itself was quite stressful and really <laughs> so it's rather, the yeah care? it's really the patients themselves like uh, because w- when you're a physician mm-hmm. you're getting to talk directly to to people it's just at a different level and even okay. in my public health work so so the current area of work I'm 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 specializing in is uh, an area we call patient engagement mm-hmm. so uh, I guess you can call it consumer engagement um, just seeing like how can patients have an active role? I think yes, as a doctor, yes. even as, as any caregiver, you sort of develop a paternalistic relationship with patients. Like, oh, I'm helping the patient. I'm, you know, listening to the patient. I'm like, no, the patient actually has a better idea of this thing than you. Like, if I've been yes, living with a disease for 20 yeah. years, I actually have a lot more intelligent things to say about it than someone who learned about it for four years. I think that element of, I actually learn from the patients, but not the clinical training. Uh, it's actually wow. that interaction with the patients. I, as either as an individual doctor or even in my programs and policy work where we're working with patient organizations. So we have all these organizations in Asia, like you know, Cancer Patients Association, mm-hmm. you know, Hemophilia Association, all these different diseases that have actually come together to represent their interests at a, at a hospital level, at a clinician level at a policy level, government level, to be like, please fund the drugs for our disease. You know, I think we learned a lot from the AIDS activists and mm-hmm. a lot of that activist work actually stemmed from there Later to this, down, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. you know, movement towards, you know, nothing for us without us. So right. it's that uh, closeness with the patients that you get in medicine that I'm saying is hard to find in other fields, mm-hmm. uh, but it's not the training itself that gave me that. It's the it's the interaction with the, the patients themselves and the really, patients. yeah, really getting to know their story. And you'd really be surprised how much you learn just from talking to people, you know, like who are living with the actual condition. Yeah. No, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, I feel like in the conversation we've had so far, you've answered like the bulk of the questions I had for you. I was going to ask you what your favorite thing about that. It sounds like you, you enjoy uh, or have enjoyed interacting with patients or that's like the most sounds like a very meaningful, meaningful part of your work. And then using that to like inform, you know, larger um, conversations and discussions like um, at a policy level. I guess maybe we could jump to, let's talk about skills. I feel like another thing that um, might interest people when they're thinking about options. So from your experience, we've heard so far that you did your bachelor's degree, you did chemistry and anthropology, um, did you work after your bachelor's before you then went to medical school? I didn't work directly. I sort of did a six month, a six month internship thing. Um, and then I went straight into medical school. So right. I, I didn't really work for a long time before uh-huh. I went to medical school. Um, right. so you had internships. Yeah, I had internships. Um, and I took time out of medical school to go do my MPH. So I actually did my MPH, uh, during medical school. Um, oh, and I also like did between yeah. like M3, M2 so, and like M3. Yeah. So I took a year out to do my MPH and then I spent a year, another year out in Kenya doing just research for a year. 
what was like, what was your, okay, for the MPH, I kind of understand that. I think that's a fairly common, at least in the US context or like programs that are four-year medical degrees, a lot of people will between their preclinical and clinical take time to either do the MPH or MBA or whatever, like, or policy degree. But what about the additional, like, how were you, I guess what I'm trying to get as is like, if young people or people were still considering careers in public health are listening to this, right? What was, where was your head at when you were deciding, I think the MD and the MPH, we kind of heard, you've kind of talked through how you landed there, right? You always really wanted to be a public health doctor. And then you did the medical training because you saw the value in patient care and also the, 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 the kind of like the power and voice you get by having a medical um, degree. I guess I'm interested in this time off to do the research in Kenya piece, because um, it sounds like your career path has so many like pauses and breaks um, that have been <laughs> yes. enriching. So like, wh- like, what were you thinking when you're like, oh, I'm gonna take a year off? Like, was that like something that was suggested to you by someone? Was it like a pre-established track? Or was it because you were passionate about maybe taking some time to do research? Like, how did you, what was your decision process maybe? Oh my God, I wish I wish it was something so planned out and organized. Uh, but really, I actually got really burnt out. If I'm being honest, mm-hmm. I almost had a mental breakdown in medical school. So, so like I right. said, I, I, moved, I moved to a new country, you know, to a relatively new school that had just been created. Mm-hmm. I was like the first Black person anyone had ever seen in their lives. It was just really stressful. Yeah. So I think... I had enough like reserves to still do well in school, but I felt that emotionally, mentally, I wasn't in a good place. So I knew that I had to take the the year out to do the MPH anyway, because the way I went to a school that has a research year embedded in the the four-year program. Mm -hmm. So I knew that, you know, this is actually my time to breathe because I was Mm -hmm. really almost having a mental breakdown. So I said, you know what? I need to remind myself why I went into medicine in the first place. So uh, I, I'm really enjoying being in, on my MPH. I, I, I suddenly felt well again, you know, being out of that environment. You know, sometimes medical training can be quite toxic. Toxic. It's quite an abusive environment. It's the kind of place where someone throwing a knife at you in the OT is considered as, you know, oh, that's just how he is. It wow. can be quite um, toxic. Intense, yeah. So just that year of my MPH when I was away, I was like, oh my God, like my head feels so clear. Like I don't feel depressed anymore. And I was like, okay, I'm going to take another year because this is doing wonders for me. Yeah. So it wasn't something that I really planned to do. I'd always planned to do my MPH. Right. um, But I hadn't planned that extra year, but I really enjoyed it. I was in, uh, I was in coastal Kenya at Camry Welcome Trust. It was really an amazing year. And when I came back to medical school, I was so reinvigorated. Whereas if I had, stayed in Singapore I probably would have committed suicide or something honestly like I'm not even exaggerating so I I can't say I planned it out unfortunately it was just sort of something I did really for my mental health and it ended up being really good I felt really I I I don't know what my career would have been like if I hadn't taken that yeah yeah no thank you for sharing that that is so important I know like I have so many friends who are currently um why they're like in medical school or in their residency and you yeah like a lot of what you're saying I've definitely heard before on like just how isolating the experience can be and it's also just very like rigorous and intense and and then to layer that with like being an international student and being away from home away from like your um, known support system or even like your support system from undergrad right that's still a new space to navigate um, but then you went to coastal Kenya. Oh my gosh, I can't wait to go to Mombasa. <laughs> it's so funny you mentioned being um, the first Black person that you know people were seeing when you were in the program in Singapore. So that there's that's also a piece to kind of like think about where pe- when people think about like studying or doing their training outside of home, right? Um, in which career paths to pick and where and kind of like the things they would have to mentally prepare for, I guess, in their career paths. But it sounds like those two years were did it, were like magical for you and they kind of like brought out even more for experience. And what I've constantly, for me, I guess, I always like asking people questions and what I've been told in a lot of like interviews, job interviews, and just asking veterans in the field is just like, the more time you take off before your next step is always beneficial because it just, like you say, to just, 
it's good to take the mental break and it also informs your like your future steps you learn so much in the experience or you learn what you don't like and that's also helpful in informing the kind of like whether it's physician you're going to be or public health practitioner so that's all very exactly and and you have space to think you know about what you want to do next so like I'm literally like on a break right now uh because the past two years with COVID I was like man I'm starting to get burnt out this is obviously not as bad as medical school but I could feel you know that feeling again of being overwhelmed, of being burnt out. And I said, you know what? I know what will work because it worked for me last time. Um, so I really planned this this break I planned in advance. So I saved up for a whole year. Uh, I worked extra jobs so that I could live six months without a salary. I really yeah. planned it meticulously yeah. because yeah. I knew that the break would be good, that you know, it's been a hard pandemic. Mm-hmm. I've worked hard. I, I I, I could use the rest. Yeah, no, not the mere, you need the rest. And like, we appreciate the work you did. But yeah, you know, people who take care of others need to take care of themselves as well. So thank you for like sharing that. And also just like, I think that's also sound advice. I think for me, I'm definitely, <laughs> I think it's, I mean, also that's the point of this podcast, but just in general, as a person, I think there's always, I'm definitely like, go, 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 go. Like, what's next? So like, we're doing this, doing the MPH. I'm doing, like, there's a, there's a three-year plan. There's a five-year plan. There's a 10-year plan. But I think in all of that, you know, there's value in just like taking some time, pause to reflect, to recharge. And that will help you inform and make better decisions in your career path. So um, word to the wise. And then I guess my other question for you um, actually, before we get to skills, because I feel like skills always taper off to the end, I think still maintaining this question of like, I've asked you like how you ended up in public health, what kind of training you've done, what we talked about in one of the spaces we host on Twitter was people shared what their motivation was, but I would be curious to hear for you what, what does it mean for you to say I work in public health or what does yeah the field of public health what is public health to you when you say you know I, 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 I'm a public health physician or I'm a public health doctor what how do you explain this to your mom for example or your grandma or like right <laughs> yeah, like, I don't, I don't think I explain it very well to you yeah <laughs> um, I'm always so, curious to hear as people's a, answers to that as a public health doctor I think it's sort of an understanding and working towards health in its most holistic sense. So I'm concerned with the health of individual patients that I may see in my clinic, and I still see patients in clinic. Uh-huh. I'm concerned with the health of communities. So, uh, you know, do the, does the community have access to health services? Is the community involved in whatever research or care is uh, being provided to them? Uh, what are the health needs of the community? and how can we serve them. I'm thinking about the health of the planet itself. So I think it's at multiple levels, at the individual patient level, because I'm still a doctor. Uh, I'm thinking about it at a community level. I'm thinking about it at a population level. And I'm really thinking about the health of the planet because actually everything is connected. So the policies we have around clean air, around food, uh, climate change, addressing that, it all ends up in my emergency room if it's not addressed. So if people are hungry, you have a malnourishment ward, you have, you know, literally a ward of hungry children. If people are, you know, refugees, they need health services. So all this political hoo-ha, like what's happening in Ukraine now, it all comes back to bite us. So it's really, you know, at every level, I have to be concerned with assessing the needs and seeing what interventions we can provide with communities and not just for communities. No, that's amazing. That's perfect. I get that, but I'm in the field. So, <laughs> but no, that's a really good <laughs> take to it. And I guess you, like you said, you're the double-edged sword and that you have the clinical, you have kind of like multiple levels in it. I just, just a quick follow-up on that. So when you say you still see patients, do you see them in the emergency room or do you see at the primary, like, yeah. like um, I guess- So I work, um, so let's say I work about, maybe one day a week that I see patients. Mm -hmm. So I either see them in the emergency room if I'm working there because it's shift-based work at the emergency room. So they hire additional doctors to see Uh uh, in certain shifts. Uh Or I work at a polyclinic, which is our primary care clinics uh, in Singapore. Uh Or I work at charity clinics. So uh, one particular clinic I work at uh, provides clinical services for 
uh, foreign migrant workers. So in Singapore, a lot of the construction work is actually done by low-wage migrant workers who come from India, Bangladesh, China, Thailand, and Myanmar. So these are the poorer countries around Singapore. And they earn very little, and they don't have uh, the same health coverage as what Singaporean citizens have. So there's this uh, Christian organization that has created uh, these clinics where uh, these workers can uh, get medical care at a reduced price. So us as physicians, we have nurses, we have pharmacists who volunteer at the clinics to provide medical care as well as social and legal services for them as well. Yeah. So I'm still seeing patients usually at least one day a week. Okay. So at the primary level. Okay. Or in the emergency. That's amazing. Um, and that's, to be fair, even I, I guess, because sometimes when I've talked to like friends and people, I have met like people on the far end of the spectrum who are like, I hate anything clinical. I don't want to see patients, you know, put me in a lab or let me write a policy paper on it, but I don't want to interact with people. And then you have the people on the other end of the spectrum who really just want to see patients, right? And would want to do like full-time on that. And then you kind of have the in-between. And I find that even, at least with some of the doctors I've encountered in my careers that, you know, you never really do it. Even if you are a full-time like clinical, sometimes you are at least 80%. And then like, sometimes you're doing research or sometimes you also have like time on the site to do other things. So there's always kind of like, you are seeing patients, but there's more to being like a physician or a medical doctor. Um, so that's also something that's interesting to note. Um, so you do like 20% patient care. Okay. Yep. And 80%, like I said, I'm a Swiss army knife. I go where I'm <laughs> needed. Uh, so my skill is to be very adaptable. Sometimes I have to literally learn as I go. So, you know, I, I spent a year, I spent almost two years working in a health products regulation. So I was completely new to it. I had to learn about, you know, how drugs are assessed and evaluated, FDA stuff, like all the stuff that nobody teaches you in medical school. I just mm -hmm. had to quickly, you know, really learn, read up about it, learn and be able to lead programs in that. So I think it's hard for me to really pin down what I do and explain because it can change. Uh, I can be seconded to a different agency every year. Um, and I just have to pick up things as I go. But I, I guess at the core is mm -hmm. really listening uh, to those who, who you know are really deep in that field, that ability to communicate, connect people, talk to people. Uh, these are the skills you can carry you know, no matter where you're posted. Uh, and that ability to quickly synthesize information, uh, you know, get to the point, <laughs> uh, be succinct, uh, be good at writing. Because mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people have ideas in their head, but they're not really good at then translating it to a plan, uh, policy, that sort of thing. So it's really having those transferable skills. So I, I'm ready. My suitcase is always like half unpacked because I know my office will change. Um, wow. So, yeah. And like in, in those different, like it sounds like you wear different hats, whether it's at a, you know, like you said, at a regulatory or a different like public health agency or service. Do you feel like in, in the room, are you... I guess because sometimes, at least in the work that I do, sometimes we, excuse me, we pull in, we have like roles where we call, we call them like technical advisors, or we even have like a whole global health science like department. So we view those individuals as like the pure, like by pure, I mean like their focus is the clinical knowledge or it's the science, it's the bench science. So it's like, are so are you being pulled in because of your clinical background and you're informing policies or is it that you have clinical background and you also have this vast experience in multiple other things and like that's just like a mixed bag of skills and tools that you're just using? Yeah, it's that intersection I have because what happens is there are people who are really good clinicians, but they don't understand at all about policymakers. So policymakers, most of the time are politicians. They have to win elections. They have a whole different set of push and pull factors compared to a doctor working in a clinic. So a doctor can be really good at cardiology, but for them to really understand what motivates and drives uh, politicians or policymakers, they're not always able to, to bridge that gap. And at the same time, policymakers are not able to always understand the concerns that the physicians have. So people like me are sort of the translators, I guess, the, the interpreters. <laughs> I, can speak, I can speak both languages. Uh, I know what it is to work for a minister who's working for a prime minister who has to win an election. 
and the practical things you can do within the country's budget and political landscape. And on the other end, I'm a clinician, so I know what the doctors care about. I can speak their language as well. So sometimes the two of them talk to each other. They talk past each other. Uh, But people like me are sort of the mutants. Uh, I don't know what you call us. (laughs) Uh, We're able to sort of bring the two together. Yeah, we we bring the two together uh, so that we can meet in the middle somewhere. And then the third element I also try to add to my work is the community aspect because I I feel like sometimes the two of those groups ignore that third group, which is the actual uh, people who are electing them and Mm -hmm. uh, who are their patients. So I really try and weave my ability to interact with a community, uh, not just as a patronizing, I am your doctor, so listen to me, but as an, yeah, I see you, you, know, you have a community organization. I want to listen to your concerns, you know, at the same level. In the same way, I would listen to the ministry, in the same way, I'd listen to the, the cardiologist. So it's about bringing those three people together. And there's a fourth bubble that I interact with a lot, which is uh, the private sector industry. So mm-hmm. the doctors really don't like to talk to industry. <laughs> Sometimes the, the, the ministry people cannot talk to industry for conflicts yeah, of interest reasons. In yeah, so I sort of have my foot in all these worlds and I'm able to navigate all of them. So I think that is my unique skill. So it's hard for me to say I'm deeply technically knowledgeable about this one thing. But if I work long enough, I think two years is about enough to be technically yeah. knowledgeable in something, I think. Of course, I'm not going to claim, you know, I'm an you know, specialist in that thing. Uh, but I think I can get by. I, I'm pretty technically yeah. uh, technically uh, proficient enough in it that I can speak intelligently and I can speak intelligently to a policymaker, to someone in that field, to a person on the street who, you know, just learned about this thing yeah, yesterday. Thing is, and yeah. I need to like, you know, cater to all those people. Yeah. That's amazing. I feel like you could do a TED talk about this. Have you thought about that in your <laughs> No, because like I said, my job is so nebulous. Like, it's really hard for me to, uh, you know, if you're an epidemiologist, you're like, yeah, I'm an epidemiologist. Like, everyone knows that. Uh-huh. But my job is just like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> like, you're like, like, a like yeah, public that. health shapeshifter. <laughs> like, you're public health. Exactly. Oh, wow, that is so cool. Or like, you know, like, I don't know. I've been watching Chicago Med. <laughs> and you know how it kind of... It, <laughs> intersects with Chicago PD but I also like crime so it's it's almost like you know like I, I like what do CIA agents train in like you know <laughs> they they just have a lot of <laughs> exact so it sounds like you are a public health CIA agent or a public health FBI agent where it's like no that's exactly it because you just have to blend in wherever you are I can definitely do that <laughs> and you, you use any skill set that is required in that moment to kind of um push the work forward and correct <laughs> Yeah, so given all this um, experience and um, where you are today, I guess my other question for you is what do you know now about the field that, that in, you know, and you can choose to be as broad as you want when you're answering this or as specific to maybe the current project or your, the most recent work you've been doing. What do you know now that you wish you had known or understood earlier, maybe 5, 10, 15 years ago? Hmm. What do I know now? I, I guess it's that element of that I know enough to do well. Like, I think I, if you had asked me, can I do you know, this role? I would have said, no, I'm vastly un- underqualified. There's no way I could apply for that job. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of the jobs that I've ended up doing, I didn't apply for them. I just sort of got sent there. And I, right. I ended up doing really well at it. Whereas if I had been left to my own devices, I would have looked at all the, you know, the qualifications they list in the job ad, you know, oh man, I I don't have any of those. I guess I can't Mm -hmm. apply. So I think if I could go back and tell myself anything is that, oh my God, just ignore that job ad. Like (laughs) all those lists of things that you think you need to do job X, Y, Z are probably uh, not necessary. Of course, you have to have the knowledge of the area or technical skills, you know, if it's something very technical. Mm-hmm. But I think, especially as women, we tend to talk ourselves out of opportunities um, by wanting to, you know, be perfect, mm-hmm. uh, to be prepared before we do the thing. Whereas men tend to be like, you know what, I'm ready for anything. Just put me and I'll learn. I'll learn how to do it as I'm doing it. So I think that's one thing I've learned, that you can learn how to do something while you're doing it. You don't have to have mastered it like in school or something before you actually do it. 
You're so right about that. I really need to get on that. I really need to stop like this perfection thing. So that's that's as much for me as everybody else who's going to listen to this, that don't pay too much attention to like, and I think similar to that, someone once told me that, or I read it somewhere where it's like, when HR comes up with these job descriptions, they're writing a wish, right? So <laughs> maybe yeah. like the candidate they're looking for might not even exist. So like the, the thinking that you have to match you know, a certain like 80% or 90%. Prop like even HR knows that like the chances might be low. So if you, you know, you're passionate about it, you feel like you have the basic skill set, like go for it. Um, so that's a good point. Exactly. Just go for it. <laughs> oh my God. That takes a lot of bravery. And I guess also like you're saying, um, it comes with experience and and experience in the sense that you you find yourself in different um, opportunities and then you realize oh I actually can do this so that's that's comforting to know <laughs> and then I guess my last question for you with these two I'll kind of like combo is like what um, I guess what is your advice like I said earlier to an 18 year old version of yourself thinking about which like considering who is like maybe somehow interested in health or they know they kind of like you know, things related to, to like the COVID pandemic, for example, like what is your advice for them in like pursuing a career path in public health? And then similarly, for those who might be like mid-career or feeling like they want to do a switch and, and, and move into like, you know, quote unquote, more do-gooder fields, for those who are pivoting or starting out mid-career, what would be your advice to kind of like get into public health and like where to start? Okay, so for those uh, younger people, I would definitely advise them to pick their courses carefully because when you're young, that's when you can really, like I said, education is all you have to show. You don't have the experience yet. Mm -hmm. So I would really focus on getting your fundamentals strong. So I would say, although I'm not a huge maths person, I would say I wish I had um, sort of focus a bit more on my quantitative skills. I think I have other skills that are strong, uh, mm-hmm. but I think that's something, um, if you're not naturally math inclined, uh, some MPHs let you get away with like the bare minimum, like math ability. I would say push yourself, uh, mm-hmm. get a little bit better at it. I, I say this because it helps you to work with your you know, PhD colleagues later on. If you have epidemiologist colleagues, if you have mathematician colleagues, or if you find yourself in a very bones, bare bones kind of organization where they're actually looking to you to do the quant things because they can't afford it, you know, having a separate uh, yeah, analyst for things. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you have that skill set um, at your disposal, uh, then yeah. you're really ready like, for anything <laughs> because I think the other things come more naturally to some people. Um, mm-hmm. So I'd say, yeah, don't skimp on the quant courses you take during school. Even if you don't do like uh, a math major or something like that, uh, in your MPH, whatever whatever degree you do, uh, I always encourage people do a little bit more quant than you're comfortable with, just a little bit more. Just a little bit. Uh, the second thing I would say is to really get solid at writing. You'd be surprised how many really, really senior and knowledgeable people can't write to save their life so if you can actually bring that skill to an organization you will actually be someone that um, is very useful as an intern um, you know as you're building up your career Um, even if it's uh, you know the people in the organization can write but they just don't have the time if they can find someone they can you know push that work to Uh, Mm -hmm. and it's something you can do even while you're still in Zimbabwe you can be writing you know from a distance even if you don't get the opportunity to get a WHO internship and go to Geneva, mm-hmm. uh, writing is something you can do from anywhere. And it really gets your foot in the door because, you know, you have a product to show that this is my portfolio of writing. Uh, I am a strong writer. You may not have the content, content knowledge, but you can always uh, write what you, you know, interviewed from the actual experts. So that comes to the third skill, which I think everybody should learn. Um, so us as anthropologists, uh, we learn how to do what we call ethnographic interviewing. Um, so I don't think you have to specifically get that skill, but I think the skill of uh, qualitative methodology of uh, being able to you know, interview people, do focus mm-hmm. groups, 
pretty much any job you do in public health will have some version of this. Either you're like interviewing experts to write something or you're interviewing people to design, uh, to understand their needs, to design a program for them, or you're evaluating a program. Anything you do in public health, at the end of the day, you have to either do this uh, kind of analysis or read somebody else's analysis. And if you don't have an experience of it, you won't be able to really judge the quality of it. So those are the three things. Do a bit more quant than you, you're used to. Mm -hmm. uh, get so good at writing that you're indispensable and uh, really uh, at least have a solid foundation and qualitative methodology. Mm -hmm. So those are the, 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 the three like kind of skills you can learn. Um, and then there are some soft skills that I think are important, which is just getting to know people in the field. So even though I'm not based in Africa right now, mm -hmm. I always try and just maintain some connection to people. Like every job I've gotten, it's been really a random connection that threw it my way. You know, someone I met on Twitter is like, oh, you know, I have a grant. Do you want to be like the co-PI on it? Um, someone, you know what I mean? Really mm -hmm. random people I met at conferences. Um, so I'm, I'm quite a shy person and quite an awkward person. Um, but it, I think it is important in our field to just say hi to people, just uh, get to know people because you never know where your next opportunity is going to come from. Right. Yeah. And I would say for those who are like a bit more experienced or looking to pivot, that's actually going to be the most important thing for them rather than, you know, the school things I mentioned. Um, it's that people who sort of have worked with you and know that, you know what? she doesn't have that background in public health. Maybe she's, she's been a doctor for the last 10 years, but you know, she, we worked on her on our HIV program and she's great. I know she could learn. So that, that relationship you build with people, uh, they get to know you as well. And then if you're good at writing and other little things, you can, you know, get consultancies and then help them and then eventually get a job there. So yeah, those are the four things. I amazing, amazing, amazing. No, I completely, the qualitative part, you're so right. <laughs> Yeah, no, this, those are all good, good, good pointers. Um, yeah, I'm like, oh my gosh, can I go back five years and redo it again? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, what no, you can't, but don't worry. I shouldn't. <laughs> no, that, this is all very valuable. And I think the good thing, I think, with any career path in any industry, right? There's, there's no, you know, I feel like you can always reinvent yourself and you can always, you know, learn skills as you go, kind of what you're saying. So there's definitely, yeah. It's never too late, I guess, to get started. It's, it's never too late. It's never, never too late. No, that's that's absolutely right. But um, it was so nice talking to you, Nikki. Thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your life experiences and what has motivated you to work in public health and your current work to date. It's been a really great having you. I was just like listening and being like, yes, and like snapping my fingers <laughs> and like nodding and like oh, <laughs> someone who understands me. <laughs> which is exactly <laughs> what I'm looking to get out of this podcast. So this is like perfect and exactly what I'm hoping this podcast continues to be a space where people hear from people's experiences and kind of learn. And also, even if you're already in the field, just get to kind of like relate and just um, hear from others who are in the trenches as well. So thank you so much. I don't know if you have any closing words, if there's anything you want to plug before we finish. No, not today. I think it's really <laughs> great talking to you. And thank you so much. You took me down memory lane. And I, right. I hope that, that, you know, this will be helpful to someone listening out there. Absolutely. I always, I learn better when I listen to like, quote, quote, like real people. So um, this is why I started this podcast. So this has been perfect. So this has been Utano Public Health Chats. We have been talking to Nikki today about her Korean public health. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.